everyone, it's Alexa. And Catherine. And we're the girls behind Tickets, Please. And on today's episode, we're talking about this year's Best Picture nominees. Hey guys, just a heads up, the movies we're going to be talking about are spoiler-filled discussions. Also, we had some technical issues recording this up, so some spots are a little choppy. So I watch Oscar movies differently than I watch any other movie. Because for good or ill, the Academy has a formula that they usually go by, and all of the best picture noms will usually fall into like one category that a reason why they're nominated and usually watching it, you'll be able to pick that reason out and it just kind of presents itself to you. And you'll just from watching, I know that I'm watching it in a different mood than when I'm watching like how to lose a guy in 10 days. It's there's always going to be some deeper message or something going on, but it's usually not so arduous to get to the heart of and so many of these I got to the end and I had the same feeling for like half of them where I was just like huh okay and some of them I really really enjoyed and so the experience of watching it if I wasn't thinking about the fact that it was nominated for best picture might have been different but so many of them I was like all right what did I just watch that for what were they trying to say and did and if I could figure out what they were trying to say did they say that successfully and I thought the answer to a lot of them was no it seems like when each of them were done I felt like I had homework after agreed two of them in particular I felt like this movie is actually too smart for me I can't figure it out I, which ones tar and triangle of sadness truly deeply i mean this for real i didn't understand them i was watching it and i'm like i don't know what's happening i i don't understand what i'm supposed to understand is what's happening everybody that i saw talk about triangle of sadness talked about how hysterical it was I didn't find any of it funny. I didn't find it funny at all. And like, I get it. They're making fun of the rich. Okay. And this is not a new groundbreaking statement to make. And it was excruciatingly depressing. I thought it was soulless. It was not grounded in any kind of human emotion, which I get his point. It's supposed to be like a dark satire, I guess. But it was just beyond not for me. I was done and ready to like never think about it ever again. I completely agree. My only takeaway from that, and I'm sure there were many, many more, but I just actually shockingly understanding why Abigail wanted to kill what's her name at the end. Right. Because otherwise she was going to have to go back to the hell of a life that she was living. And here she was the quote, upper class, wealthy class. And uh, frankly, I don't really blame her for feeling that way. <laughs> but, but did she even kill her? I don't know. And what's crazy is that, and maybe it's supposed to be ambiguous. Maybe we're not supposed to know. But when I was done with it, I didn't even care to Google it. It was supposed to be ambiguous because I did Google it only because I was then confused about the scene after where what's his name is running through the forest. 
And I was like, why is it there? Maybe she was going after all of them, but he didn't seem like he was running away from anything. So I don't know. What I found was the reason is that he was like chasing after them because was thinking about how they were like alone together that whole time. And he was desperately trying to keep them from having any kind of conversation about anything. So he was desperately trying to get to them so that they wouldn't talk about him, presumably. Oh, that makes more sense. Because even if she did want to kill some of them, she wouldn't have killed him. But now that you say that, it makes me think also maybe he was running because it occurred to him that what she was about to do could happen. He definitely could have, but he's so vapid and self-centered that I don't know if he even had the capability of thinking that intelligently. (laughs) So hot, by the way. I was like, "Where? who the hell is this guy? He's been in a lot of stuff, but I've never seen him before. I've never seen him either. The beginning was very funny, and I I did like it when they were having the whole argument about him paying for dinner. I thought that part was great. I was like, wow, this is so good. I loved when they're by the elevator and he's screaming, it's not about the money. It's about the fucking money, y'all, y'all. This is not, no, it's not. You're not understanding the point. It's not about the money. I'll give you that 50 euros. I'll give you 100 euros. How many? No, I'm serious now. This is not about the fucking money. Why won't you understand it? Understand my point. This is not about the money. Oh my god. Okay. okay. I wanted to be All I could think was fucking Vanderpump rules when when James is screaming at Lala, it's not about the pasta. Why is it about the damn pasta? Get over the damn pasta. Read between the fucking lines. It ain't about the pasta. It's not about the pasta. But I thought all of that beginning was really good. The the two of them were the best part, for sure. Did you agree with him? I did. I would say mostly yes, too. Especially after when they talked about it and she admitted that she really had no intention of paying. I think her intentionally ignoring the option to pay wasn't actually the worst thing she did. It was the immense amount of gaslighting after that. Right. If she had just come out and said, actually, like, maybe it's not even fair, but I think you should be paying and I don't want to, I could almost be like, well, all right. (laughs) But she over and over and over pretended like she had no idea what he was talking about and watched him get more and more and more upset and worked up about it and almost was like, you know, people like that who are like, wow, you're getting really upset, aren't you? It was that kind of... Also, when they do get on the boat, I don't know if this is just a me thing, but for some... I don't know where they ended up filming it, but it looked cold. When they were on the boat, I did not think like, wow, they're in a very warm, tropical place. It looked if I was on that boat deck that I would need like the clothes, like a jacket and a sweater. Like it didn't look <laughs> warm. <laughs> like it looked, it didn't look like a an elaborate summer destination. And maybe that was some kind of point, but it looked cold. Well, we've talked about that a lot. So I trust your conclusion <laughs> there, actually. <laughs> The whole sequence with everything that happened on the boat, I wish I could erase it from my memory, Eternal Sunshine style, because seriously, is the worst. It, I was fast forwarding so quick. I literally was going to be sick myself. That I do not find funny at all. 
this was so beyond what I even could have conceived knowing from the toast talking about it. It was so much worse than I thought. You asked me, is the vomit scene really bad? And I sort of said to you, it's not so much a scene as it is a section. And it's not even the vomit so much as it is like everything going on around it. <laughs> yeah. For me, it was the vomit because I literally oh, well. can't stand when people vomit in movies ever. I was gagging myself i couldn't i didn't even watch 90 percent of that i think one of the things that made it less impactful to me is when woody harrelson's character and that other guy are sitting at the table repeating and googling and reading passages to each other the first couple back and forth things i was like okay yeah yeah cool cool all right. And it went on for so long. And then into the scenes where they're in, I don't even know if it's like the captain's quarters or whatever. I guess. And the lights are out and the boat is flailing around and the sewage is coming <sighs> out and people are falling down staircases and they're on that intercom system reading that stuff. I was like, we get it. <laughs> we get it. <laughs> God. It was just heavy-handed. I don't know. It was heavy-handed and obtuse at the same time. Yes. It it felt like it was calling me to look deeper, but I think maybe we weren't. Maybe it was just all on the surface. And I was just expecting to need to work more for it. And 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 we did it. It was just there. And maybe that was intentional. Maybe actually it was brilliant. <laughs> Is this my favorite? Do I want this to win Best Picture? <laughs> Another thing that I thought we were done with in movies that not one but two of these do is is that thing where it's like broken up into sections that they label on the screen. Just make the movie. I don't need it to be broken up into sections with names. You want to talk about Tar next? Sure. We'll do the confusing ones back to back. <laughs> Why were there weird sections where paranormal stuff was happening that had no explanation? I think she was losing her grip on reality. Was it clear I, I, that that was what was happening? That was my interpretation. It started weird with, even just with playing the credits backwards in the front. I was like, what's going on? Am I watching? Did I accidentally start the movie at the end? I really did think that. And then we watched that long interview that she had explaining her career. Which I was entranced by. That was the most interesting thing I watched throughout all of these. Wow. I loved it. I could have watched an hour of that. I thought there was something about her directness that was incredibly relaxing. The second she started talking, I was like, oh, I, I understand why she's nominated for Best Actress. Within two minutes of her being on screen, just the way she held herself, it was, I've seen Kate Blanchett in so many movies that she literally appeared visually different and felt different. And that's why I, I was like, oh, okay. I, I totally understand why she's nominated. I agree. And she did did it so well that I thought this, I had to look it up. I thought she must be playing a real person because I, I thought she must have transformed into whoever this person is <laughs> and it's not a real person. She was the only thing, in my opinion, that worked about the movie. And the set design. Every time she spoke German, I was like, wow, you are speaking German. 
I don't know if it was good because I don't speak it. It sounded good to me. I loved that. But overall, I, I did find it confusing. And are we supposed to know whether she really did take advantage of people? It doesn't seem like the movie even cared to tell you. I know a lot has been written about it, but I just, I'm not going to read them. <laughs> this is the problem with this year. In years past... I don't know if it's the movies or if it's me, but in years past, that's a question that I would immediately, I would read five articles on it to understand it. What I was going to say is while the German was impressive, what was not was her fake piano playing. I thought it was absolutely horrendous. When she was playing, quote unquote, the piano in the Juilliard scene, I was like, you couldn't learn two bars of piano? I can't imagine that of all actors on earth that she would have not fully learned it and played it. I didn't notice what you're pointing out, so I'd have to go back and look. But it was just visually obvious. Yes. The way the scene was blocked, it was clear that they were doing it because she hadn't learned it. So that made it glaring. But then also, like, her hands literally didn't look even remotely like they were playing what she was supposed to be playing. I thought the whole thing also felt very, like, Black Swan to me, which... Yeah. Makes sense given that it had that psychological aspect to it, which I did like. I just, at the end of the day, couldn't figure out what the point of it was. And it didn't leave me, like you said, wanting to Google the answer. I just was done with it and was like, okay. Is this going to be our worst episode? Maybe. It seemed like the kind of movie that she would be nominated, but it wouldn't be for Best Picture. It, it's like a classic example where she's the main character in such an intense way that it's almost uh, it's almost unimportant what else is going on. It's just like, look at Kate Blanchett acting. <laughs> <laughs> But maybe this is, again, just because we haven't done the work to really understand it. I guess. I think if I have to do work to understand it, I'm not totally against that. But I think the movie should make me want to do that. And I did not feel any kind of urgency yeah. to figure out what it was telling me or what was going on. And that is the theme this year. If it had driven me to, oh my God, I need to understand this. Let me read like 10 articles about it. That's fine. I don't care that I need to read the articles, but I should want to when the movie's over. One quote I did write down, which was in a very problematic scene, but I still liked the quote. Don't be so eager to be offended. The narcissism of small differences leads to the most boring conformity. I thought it was a very succinct, pretentious way of summarizing her almost entire character. <laughs> and I think ultimately, I know there's been a lot of talk around how the message of this is, are people cancelable? Should people be cancelled? Mm -hmm. Etc. Because there are so many things for us to actually be offended about. Yes. That wasting time on all these little tiny things is, that's exhausting. Let's save our energy for the really important things like racism and transphobia and classism. Like, let's be offended about those things. But let's not waste our time on the other tiny garbage which was ironic coming from her being that she might have been a person that was worthy of being canceled <laughs> right. she has a point but wasn't looking inward at the fact that she was right potentially... and like she is the narcissist exactly <laughs> <laughs> what's hysterical about this is that i had no idea what it was about and a couple of days before i watched it my dad and i had gone to see lord of the rings at radio city with a live orchestra and in the car ride over, we had a whole conversation about like what a conductor does. Cause you know, my dad is very 
funny about the fact that he like you know like what do they do and i had no idea either but he of course was like what are they <laughs> what do they do up there i can imagine it was a seinfeld episode it totally was i actually think there is a seinfeld episode about it because elaine dates someone they call the maestro and i don't know if there i can't oh, think yeah. if there are any jokes about how like jerry makes a joke about how they don't do anything i i can't remember but i'm sure oh, there he, is. there's no way he doesn't he has to <laughs> But what's so funny is that not only were we having that conversation and then I turn this on and it's all about a conductor, but at the end, she's doing what we were seeing. It was a live movie viewing with an orchestra. Full circle when it ended, I was cackling. I said, do you want to talk about All Quiet on the Western Front next? This is the first one that I watched. And I think it was the first one you watched too, right? Yep. Man, I texted you when I finished it that I thought you should watch it first to get it out of the way because it only oscillated between boring and horrific. Did you... Did you find that to be the same? Yeah, I think if the goal was to show us the violent, chaotic tragedy of that war, they achieved it. Have you read the book? I have not, but I read a a review on Letterboxd, which was written so beautifully that I wanted to copy and paste and read the whole thing on here, but it's too long to do that. His name is Jamel Bowie. I hope I'm pronouncing his last name right. We'll link it if you guys want to read a review on it. It's poetic. I mean, I wish this guy would write my thoughts. Something that he points out, which I think is the crux of the whole thing. Wait, have you read the book? I think I read a Crypt Notes version. I did have to read it. I think I pretend read it for school. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then let me not say this. Let you, you share first what your thoughts were from the book to the movie. I knew that the point of the book was to highlight the devastating effects of war and how not only is it affecting those that are participating while it's happening, but also long term, which I think is interesting that the movie kind of did not address at all because there are sections of the book where he goes home and they didn't include any of that in the movie. That's exactly what he spoke about. They took the point and kind of still made it, but they shifted what it was the book is really about, which is that not only is it traumatizing while it's happening, but like he was never the same and unable to be at home and do any of his normal things because of what he experienced in World War One. And while that is really distressing. I would have rather seen that Mm -hmm. than spent so much time on these military generals and politicians figuring out the peace thing and when it was ending and it's over, but it's not over. And a year later, it's over, but it's not over. And another year later, I don't care about all that. If you're showing me this horrendous, violent stuff and the experience of these soldiers, then yeah, I would rather see what their experience is like when they get home. Yeah. That's a more nuanced story. And they did hint at it, but then they didn't go fully in. Like I wrote a quote down. It was like the golden nugget of truth through the whole thing is when he's talking to his closest friend and they're talking about the there are other friends who have died and he says to him at least they're at peace we're alive and i was like fuck man it was funny watching the movie i hated it but then after i was thinking about it for days later days it stuck some of the scenes stuck with me in a way that i could not get it out of my head for like three or four days and if that was the case for you watching a two and a half hour movie about it imagine what it's like 
for all veterans, regardless of how many casualties they saw or participated in? I literally can't. It's one of those things that we all say like, oh, it's unimaginable. But there are literally no words to describe what I can imagine is going on in their heads. Because some of it was so brutal and horrific. I could not stop thinking about it. Some of the most gut-wrenching stuff to me were the moments in between all the bloodshed that were semi-normal. I agree, which is good, I guess. It's similar to the book. That was what the book's main theme was. It was almost like the quieter moments were the worst for him. Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. The title. One other note I had was the score. Terrifying. That sound that would play was so scary. I genuinely felt and in my whole body, fear. They're getting dressed and ready, and then they start marching out to where they have to be, and it's playing. It was visceral. Speaking of them getting dressed, that oh. scene in the very beginning. Oh, boy. I can't remember what he says about the uniforms, and I don't think he actually realizes it. Uh, oh, I think that maybe that somebody somebody else's name was attached to yes. it or something like that. And we as the audience know it's because it belonged to another soldier who died mm-hmm. in it. I was like, okay, I see where we're going to be going here. <laughs> yeah. And the guy who was giving out the uniforms, the answer he gives him is, he's like, oh, I think this might have belonged to somebody. And he says, oh, yeah, I think it was too small for him. Mm. This is so beautiful from that review. The novel itself is about the profound alienation of war, the terrible toll it takes on those enlisted to fight it, and the very real sense that even soldiers who survive can never really come home. Oh, my God. I just got a chill through my whole body. (laughs) Doesn't it make you want to read the whole review? I'm telling you. I hope he's writing poetry. So there were two that you didn't get a chance to see because they were only in theaters. Oh, which, by the way, I wanted to clear something up. So I know that I've been going to the movies a lot and, I, and I, I'm and i half wondering if you thought, like, is she a Rockefeller? Why is she spending so much money going to the movies? But I, what I want to... <laughs> But I want to what I want to announce to everyone is that you are looking at a Stubbs A-list member. What does that mean? I signed up for AMC's rewards program and I pay $21 a month and I can see three free movies a week. Three a week. If I see two for the month, I've made up the money that I spend for the month. They have no idea what they're losing <laughs> by putting that in your hand. <laughs> Let me tell you something. Because I guess what I'm why it's so cheap is what I'm imagining is that they're having so many people sign up and then never go and they get the money out of them. They yeah. are losing money on me, baby. There is not a chance that I'll be letting <laughs> that go by. <laughs> your ass is in those seats. <laughs> I saw all of these for free. I saw Woman Talking. Wow. Avatar was an IMAX 3D movie. That would have been like a $40 ticket. I saw it for free. That's amazing. So anyway, so I did go and sit by myself at a screening of Women Talking. I texted you afterwards, so I'm a, um, I'm a little... The only reason I'm bummed you haven't seen it is because I hoped maybe you would have the answer, but maybe you probably wouldn't, know, being that we were talking about these all the same way. I cannot figure out why this was nominated for Best Picture. 
It is like an hour and a half. It mostly takes place in a, a one room. And as the title suggests, it's a bunch of women talking. What they're talking about is it's it's based on a something that really happened, a Mennonite colony in Bolivia. It's a group of women and they were essentially being abused and completely dominated by the men. They would come and go as they please. They would abuse them sexually and physically, and it was horrible. And the whole entire movie is the heads of the colony talking in a room about whether or not they're going to stay and fight the men or leave while they're not there. They're not there. I can't remember the reason. There is a specific reason why all the men are not there currently. So they're deciding whether or not they're going to stay or go. And that's really it. They decide to leave. And that's how the movie ends. There wasn't too much to it. There are some graphic scenes interspersed, but not a lot. It's mostly just them deliberating. They have um, one man in the colony who's the teacher for the children, and he's taking minutes, and he's a, like a gentler man. He he was taking care of his sick mother and all this stuff, and he's in love with Rooney Mara's character. And so there's like a little love thing going on there, but... All in all, I couldn't, again, get beyond what I just described, like the surface of it being just a true story and it being horrible. And the fact that this really happened is terrifying to think about, but it was only okay. The dialogue was not that great. It had this color gradation on it that made it almost black and white. And I would have rather they just made it black and white because it was so like nauseating to look at it, this weird blue gray filter over it. When they were deciding whether to stay or to go, what were the reasons that they may not have left, that they may that they might have stayed? Because they were completely self-contained, they didn't know how to read or write. So they didn't know where they were going. They've never been outside of this farm community that they're living in. So the cons for leaving is like, where would they go? How would they even exist? A lot of people didn't want to leave their homes. They had connections there. There was a deliberation over the children, the male children specifically. How old is too old that they've already been taught the ways of the men? Like, do we leave 13 and under, 12 or like how old is too old? There was some debate about that because one of the main characters had a 12-year-old son and there was some talk about whether or not she was going to take him with them or not. Some of them were really impassioned about fighting because they were particularly subject to the abuse and wanted revenge. But also they're incredibly religious, so they have that to combat with. Is it right to be vengeful? Should they be punished even though they're horrible to us? Sounds intense. Yeah, it was very intense. Without having seen it, my only guess could be that it's because it's so symbolic for women around the world in general. The reasons to leave, the reasons to stay, the reasons to get revenge. I think... Even for women who haven't experienced any type of intimate partner violence, it's still, it's almost like something that's in our collective memory. Mm. You almost know what it must feel like in a visceral way. Wow, a great guess. That's, that was, that was, <laughs> that was such a, wow, you're totally right. There's 
really n- absolutely no way to transition from that one to the other one that you didn't get to see, which is <laughs> Avatar 2, The Way of Water. It's so funny that I went that I put a poll up on our stories asking whether I had to see the first one. Everyone's going to be like, are you actually kidding that you didn't <laughs> even watch it anyway? <laughs> <laughs> well, this one, you're not going to, like I said in text... If we have to deal with three, four, and five, you're not going to be at one is fine. Two is pushing it. Wait a minute. How many are there going to be? Five. I know we've talked about this before, but I did not remember that it was five. Holy <laughs> shit. All I remember is me saying at this rate, we're going to be 75 when the last one comes out. <laughs> and from what I've read, I don't know if this is true or if it's like one of those weird Hollywood rumors that gets started, but supposedly when James Cameron submitted the script for Avatar 3 to the studio, they had not one note to give him. He, this man, the last thing this man needs is that kind of ego boost. <laughs> well, I hate to give him another one. Catherine, I hate to tell you, but I think James Cameron might be my favorite director. No, no, no. Yeah. Yes. I had a transformative experience, okay? <laughs> okay. Wait, I just, wait. <laughs> okay. It wasn't during Avatar. It was seeing Titanic in the theater. I felt like Bill Paxson's character when he's at the end and he's like, Three years, I thought of nothing except Titanic, but I never got it. I never let it in. That is me right now, okay? I am a new person having seen it in the theater. I just have to point out, and our listeners know this already, but I just feel like in this moment I have to say it, that you had this transformative experience 25 years after I did. (laughs) I saw it in the theater 25 years ago. Am I 100? What's going on? So after I had this, like awakening after seeing titanic i gave it some thought and he never he doesn't miss he does not have a long catalog of movies but every single one of them is a five star he did terminator one and two aliens is one of the best movies titanic is probably the best movie ever made avatar is it forgettable probably but while you're watching it, you think it's the best thing you've literally ever seen. He's a genius. I'm sorry. Why I loved Way of Water is it reminded me of the kind of movie that would have come out 20 years ago. Like he doesn't, his style is that he doesn't let current anything penetrate his stories or the way he makes movies. There's very little that even happens in this one. It's a lot of explanation and character development. There's not a lot of conflict and there's not a lot of action, even though there was in the first one. And it's because I think he knows what you're seeing is so cool that you won't care. And he's right. I follow Demi Adijuibe from the Gilmore Guys podcast on Letterboxd and he wrote a review and I wanted to read some of it because I think he felt the same way that I did and he said it better than I ever could. He says, I love that there's absolutely no cynicism or irony in this movie. Even in the little bits of humor he peppers in there, no winking, no audience surrogates, no comic relief. Honestly, not even that many action scenes. Where another blockbuster would throw in a fight, James Cameron knows that he's got far more interesting things to show us. An expansive world to build and attach yourself to. And doing so makes it more explosive when one big sustained climax comes. He's 100% right. Okay. (laughs) I just 
think he needs a little bit of a toot adjustment. That I will agree with. I think he definitely flipped a table when he didn't get a director nom for this year. (laughs) There's no doubt in my mind. I don't even have that too much to say. Uh, It's kind of hard to talk about this one without you having seen it because most of his plot stuff. He pays a lot of tribute to past works of himself, uh, James Cameron. He has a lot of shots that are direct parallels to Titanic. There's like a scene where... Two characters are climbing over a, a ship that's sinking where, you know, when they have to go from the, the top deck to the back. Yeah. They do that in this. And then there's like a scene where they're underwater with pipes above them. It's very Titanic-esque, <laughs> which is very cool. There's some aliens parallels. And then, oh, another reason just to pile on to my why, maybe why he's my favorite director is he. I like that he uses a lot of the same actors. I know all directors have an affinity towards certain ones like Scorsese and Leo and but James uses actors so much that there's every one of them in his movies really is in another one. Bill Paxton is in Aliens and Titanic. Kate is in Titanic and the second Avatar. Sigourney Weaver is in the Aliens movie and in Avatar. He has like 10 actors that he recycles in within 10 movies. And I just think that's cool to see all the people that have been in his other movies in this one. Because Sigourney Weaver is in the first one as herself, or not like not a Sigourney Weaver, but like as a human. (laughs) And in this one, she's voicing (laughs) one of Jake's children because it's like this whole thing where she's technically her biological mother. It's like a weird thing that I don't need to get into. But and it's just cool that he has all these actors that he loves working with and incorporates them in any. I'm sure. The first opportunity he had to include Kate, he took it. She's the wife of the leader of the Water Tribe. I do think that like Star Wars, once you sit down, I know you're resistant. You don't like when people's skin is blue or green. You had that thing with um, <laughs> with Guardians too, where you thought you were. But I did like end it. up loving Guardians. And that's what I'm saying. So I do think that when you watch it, you will like it. But I know why you don't. And it's easy to hate. And I and I will say. The shitty part about both of them is that when you're watching it, it's incredibly good and engrossing, but there's very little specific moments that stick with you after it's finished. It's it's sort of like no scene is that impactful where I'm like thinking about it or wow, that was like the best scene of the whole thing. It's sort of all one piece. So that's either a good or a bad thing. That's why I have, I'm telling you, when this started, I was like, I genuinely don't remember one single thing that happened from the first one. That's so unlike you. That's what I'm, that's how forgettable it is. I couldn't even remember, like, how does it work? How do they get to the Avatar world? How is it working that he's not a human anymore? I couldn't remember any context. When the bad guy came on screen, I was like, was he in the first one? None of it made any kind of lasting impression on me that I could even remember it watching the second one. We'll see when you watch it one day. (laughs) Probably next year I'll have to, right? Yeah, I think so. Because now I think he's under the gun where he wants to get them done. He took so long in between one and two. Yeah, I mean, he's not a young man. No, like we talked about in a look ahead. (laughs) There's no way he's going to make it to five at the rate he's going. If you're looking for trouble, you came to the right place. Looking for trouble? Just look right at my face. I was born standing up and talking back. My daddy was a green eyed man. 
want to talk about Elvis? Sure. <laughs> oh, just because I can't look at it anymore. <laughs> My first three notes are so many quick cuts, so many montages, so many crotch shots. <laughs> Do you want to know what my two first notes are? Jesus Christ, this fucking editing already. So basically exactly what you just said about the quick shots. And the second note is this movie is just one long montage. I know weirdly little about Elvis and his life. Same. I didn't know that he had an exceptionally close relationship with his mom. Apparently there were some rumors of who knows what, which I'm sure are not true, but they definitely wanted us to know that things were more intense than the average mother-son relationship. Yeah. I was actually surprised how shockingly little I had learned just from living in the world about him. So I'm curious as you know that I hate Baz Luhrmann with my entire heart. As someone who doesn't and likes, uh, you know, you like Romeo and Juliet, um, you Moulin Rouge you like, right? Yeah. I've only seen it once, but I liked it. So as someone that doesn't hate it as much as I do, what what were your impressions here? Well, I did hate Gatsby and couldn't get through it. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> and I do want to say this, and I, I think you agree with me, although I'm not sure. I don't think he's bad. I actually think he's incredibly talented. I just don't think his style is for everyone, and it's definitely not for you, and it's pretty much not for me either so i I agree and don't agree what i do appreciate about him is that it takes a lot of work and effort to be a creator whose work is instantly recognizable as their work you could show me any second of any one of his movies and i could tell you that it's a baz Luhrmann movie and so that is impressive and commendable do i actually think he's good I don't know. It's really tough for me to tell. It's it's really hard for me to separate the fact that I hate it so much. I tried so hard with this because knowing that it's nominated for Best Picture and trying to get to it, I just don't think he earned the story that he told. He tries to buy himself an emotional payoff at the end, and I think that the the movie leading up didn't service his ending. I think that he has a problem telling stories properly. He has like the the kernels and ideas of what he wants to say. And I appreciate that. His execution is so poor that I can't. He's muddying his own message that might even be good in all the crap that he piles in. I think that he thinks he's enhancing it. And even though you disagree and I mostly do too. It resonates with a lot of people. Listen, this man, as we all know, is a full-blown maniac. (laughs) For him to reel himself in enough to put something cohesive on film, (laughs) I mean, that alone is probably a feat, really and truly. I thought the, the writing of this was absolutely horrendous actually i thought it was worse than the visuals and the montages i thought the dialogue and the writing was really bad and i thought it was really unbelievably bad until it got to that scene where elvis is commanding the orchestra i thought okay we we've arrived this is who he was this is what they saw in austin butler 
Is that his name or did I just make that up? Nope, that's his name. It didn't sound like it even when you just said it, but that's his name. (laughs) (laughs) This is what it was all supposed to be like. The final hour of it I thought was really great. The time leading up to it was really, really, really hard to get to. I thought Austin, up until that point, his acting was bad, fully bad. Did I think he looked like Elvis? Yeah, he had the smolder. He looked like him, but it felt to me like he was an actor who had studied the shit out of Elvis, which he did, and put everything he had into this, which he did, but then was sort of like doing a series of poses that he knew would look like him. Yeah, like an impersonator rather than it actually didn't feel like... like... Yeah, he, he, he didn't embody the character. And I think in the final hour, while he didn't get there 100%, not deserving of an Oscar in my opinion, I do think he got a lot better. And I did feel... I felt a lot for him. And I thought, yeah, I thought it was well done in the end. I was not even expecting at all to be impressed by Austin's performance because I went in with so much animosity with what's come after. He annoys me. The voice thing is is irritating. I don't believe him that his voice has been permanently changed by learning how to talk like Elvis. I think he's full of <laughs> shit. <laughs> I'm sorry. So I really was coming from a behind the ball place of wanting to like his performance and I I did. I think by the end, he did a pretty good job of embodying Elvis and the journey he had gone through and like who he was. And I think he really did understand him to a good degree. So I do hand him credit and I, it's, I'll give them credit where credit is due. And that's not very much, but you really can feel how he dedicated everything that he has to this. I felt it. And so it worked for and against him because it worked for him in the sense of he completely became Elvis. But it also felt like Austin Butler was really trying very, very hard to be Elvis. And I couldn't get past that (laughs) thought of like, he's acting. He's so, he's (laughs) Elvis. Like he is Elvis. Sometimes it would travel too far in the direction of wanting to be him so much that I could feel it. But there were some scenes that really worked on the level of him just becoming who he was and understanding his motivations for doing things. The biggest problem that I had is that there wasn't a story. One of my notes is 45 minutes in, no sign of a story. It was literally like the montage moments you would see in a documentary that are then interspersed with real people talking about actual things that happened. We were missing the the content of what we needed. It was just a montage and then a song. All it did was songs to bridge the gap between montages of what he was doing. And so it was difficult to find the good parts because it was so like muddied. He actually had some decent scenes. I wrote I, I wrote notes down that don't really make any sense because I don't remember the movie well enough to even tell you. But I, I wrote down a quote that is it is it my fault the world changed? Obviously, I was affected by that. I don't know what who said it or where it came from, but <laughs> I wrote it down. <laughs> that scene where he's he seems on the verge of death, almost on the ground before he's supposed to go on stage. Oh my god! And they give him whatever kind of drugs. So he can go on and perform again. Not knowing so much of his life and what he went through, it, by the end, I felt so, so deeply sad for him and the life that was robbed from him. 
Yes. I felt like he was manipulated to a point that 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 led to his death. And that doesn't mean he didn't play any responsibility in his life choices. Addiction is so complex. And knowing how much of that was set off by his manager is really, really disturbing and upsetting. Of all of these, this one probably stuck with me the most. I thought about it for days. I thought about Elvis for days. When it was over, I watched this while my mom was doing my nails because I knew if I didn't have someone watching it with me, I genuinely didn't know if I was going to get through it. And she hated it just as much as I did. She wasn't even watching it. But by the end, all we had to say to each other was for Elvis. What a horrendous life he was forced into living. You're right. He did make choices to do that. But like, I only think barely, honestly. I think he was so deeply, deeply manipulated by everyone in his life. Everybody. Yes. That he was almost not making choices. He was like a robot. And that scene where he breaks down on the stage in Vegas is so freeing and upsetting because you're like finally he's able to say maybe what he's meaning to say or wanting to say this entire time and finally can and then it's just you know right back switch gets he's back into a position where he can't get out of it and he's sequence of what's his name parker colonel parker that's his name tom hanks i think so Tom Parker. I think, was his name Tom also? I think it Tom was. Tom Parker was it? Yeah, I think it is Tom Parker, but they call him the Colonel sometimes. Yeah. When he's calculating everything to give them the bill, I felt like physically ill. Yeah, it was so sickening. What a horrible, horrible, disgusting man. If the ultimate goal was to show us the tragedy of it all, it was accomplished. Totally agree. It's surprising that the Presleys were so involved with the film. I'm happy that that's the case because I hate it when stories are robbed from the families that are actually involved. I think that's her like horrific and should not be allowed. Quite frankly, I, I'm so I'm happy they were involved. But seeing it, I'm I'm surprised that they were allowed it to be so vulnerable and telling and i don't know it's interesting to me that they were as involved as i know they were even thinking about like what we saw and talked about it wasn't even in a podcast i think it was just me and you talking about the selena documentary not nearly the same kind of thing going on but but similar in the way that she has like handlers and people around her to like tell her what to do scary i'm sure a lot of celebrities have that right but if they're not surrounded by the right people how easily it can get so bad because it's so easy and tempting for the people that are around them to take advantage opportunity is presented so clearly and easily for them to become to put themselves in a position to be the ones reaping all the benefits of a celebrity and it's so easy to say well once they realize they're being taken taken advantage of they have the fame and the money and the power why don't they just get the hell out especially when they're dealing with people that are as smart like in this case is colonel barker where they they built the institution that they've trapped them in so he he has not let alvis have a, a way out because he designed it that way yeah that's so true Okay, I want to finally talk about the movie that I've been dying to talk about with you since I saw it in May. 
you finally were forced to watch Top Gun Maverick, and I need to know everything. First, I want to say I was not forced. I was looking forward to it. I was just <laughs> refusing to pay to see it. <laughs> I owned it. I've owned it for months. <laughs> and isn't it on Paramount? A couple things here. First of all, I don't have Paramount. I'm using yours. Okay. But also, I think by the time you bought it, we were close enough to Oscar season that then I was like, well, now it doesn't make sense. So I just waited. I don't know about you, but when I go to the movies, I very rarely buy any snacks. But on the rare occasion, mostly when I was a kid, where not only did we buy snacks, but it was like popcorn and it, when they used to have the big wall of all the candies that you could put into the bag and we get sour strawberry belts and chocolate covered pretzels, the feeling of walking into the theater with that variety of snacks and knowing I was about to watch a great movie, that's what watching Maverick felt like. Oh my God. Tom Cruise somewhere just got such a tingle from that. <laughs> that is exactly what he wanted. When I saw, so I saw this maybe a week or two after it was released. It was completely by accident. It was a friend of mine's birthday and we were all supposed to go to a cidery for her birthday and it poured. So we needed to come up with alternate plans and we're like, fuck it, let's just go to the movies. There were so many of us, there wasn't like a lot of things to do alternatively. It was a 15 year ago experience where we literally looked up what was in the theater, like what do we want to see? And Amazing. We went to the Palisades Mall. Oh and, my God. <laughs> and we saw Top Gun Maverick. And in the beginning, before the movie started, there is this video. I'm going to, I'm dying to see if I can find it on YouTube. YouTube to put it in. It was literally a clip of Tom Cruise in oh, I've a director's. Seen it. Oh, you've seen it? In yeah. like a director's chair saying, like, thank you for coming to the movies. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Top Gun Maverick. Thank you all for being here. Decades in the making, and so many people, our incredible cast and crew, worked very hard to bring you the most immersive and authentic film experience we could. There's real F-18s, real Gs, real speed. We're so happy you're here in this theater and seeing it on the big screen. So please enjoy as we all made it for you. I felt his plea so much. <laughs> I want to hate him for that. And I can't. I love him for it. <laughs> Listen, Spielberg apparently recently at a red carpet event told Tom Cruise that he saved cinema. And I don't even know if we can disagree. I don't know how he didn't explode out of his own body. <laughs> I don't think there are greater words to him. He thought it, but for Steven Spielberg to say it to him? That's incredible. <laughs> My first note is watching Tom take orders from John Hamm feels... <laughs> so so wrong that was actually probably my only complaint about the movie that's how wrong it felt to me wow. tom calling him sir i was like stop don't <laughs> say that don't do that there's no way john ham didn't feel weird playing that part and having tom cruise say that to him for so many decades he has been the one calling the shots both on and off the screen yeah seeing him call someone sir who was also younger than him was yeah. so no I didn't even think about that. It's really surprising that they had John Hamm as that role. Like, you'd think that would have been the Ed Harris role that he was in the very beginning that came. Yeah. That's more of the authority type figure that would be in that place. Maybe it was on purpose to really drive home the fact that he is in a much lower yeah. rank than he should be at this point. I bet you're right. I was literally being seduced by every single person on the screen. <laughs> Jennifer Con 
Every time Jennifer Connelly's eyes were on the screen, I was like, take off one more piece of clothing. I had that thought so many times when I was seeing her on that giant screen. I was thinking, is Jennifer Connelly the most beautiful woman? And yes, I mean, yes, but but it's not just the beauty. It's the seductiveness. I, <laughs> I was like, I didn't know what to do with myself and every other person in it, too. Yes. Glenn Powell, please. He could not contain himself. how can such a dope be so hot also i wrote down that at one point when at the end when they're recapping the mission Mm -hmm. as they're getting ready to go on it honestly you guys the exposition like we get it we i know you want to make it easy for us and i appreciate the effort especially with all the other shit we've had to watch but like the guy recapping it talking about the quote secret uranium enrichment site i'm sorry i know this isn't supposed to be real life but if this were a real military operation and they were actually recapping it for these pilots they would never call it a secret anything it was so ridiculous but i loved it and every time you thought the stakes were as high as they could get they got (laughs) higher every time you thought the mission was as impossible oh my god i didn't even mean to use mission impossible but truly every time you thought it couldn't be harder it got harder i loved it one of my favorite things about it is that it takes absolutely no time to get you as pumped as humanly possible in the very beginning when he has to go to Mach 10 because ed harris is on his way to shut them down i'm like this is the most exciting thing i've literally ever seen in my whole life i was thinking to myself if this is going to be a core piece of the plot that he's trying to get to Mach 10 this is going to be exhausting and within the first two minutes he was there and i was like buckle up and then I don't remember if it was, it must have been the scene right after that, or maybe it was before. I don't, I don't know. When he's in that garage and he's like in his jacket <laughs> My favorite. and he struts over and he whips the cloth off his motorcycle. I was like, we have arrived. Oh God, it's so good. And the music, <laughs> the score is so beautiful. And Lady Gaga's song, like peppered through the whole thing, is just immaculate. It was everything I wanted it to be and more. I literally wrote here, I wish this was six hours long. Oh my God. I That's why I've seen it so many times because I can't get enough. I have seen it double digit amount of times. In the very beginning, I get chills every time I hear the quote when Hondo says, He's the fastest man alive. I was like, man. I feel like that could maybe even be true for Tom himself. Yeah. That's honestly why it like resonates in my mind so much is that he is Maverick. It's like synonymous. That's what I totally believe Tom to be like in real life is is his character in Top Gun. The scene with Val. It is the most beautiful thing in the world. I immediately was crying and cried the whole time. Such a special way of including him and such a powerful, beautiful scene. The fact that he's not able to speak and has to use that tool where he's typing out to be able to see visually it's time to let go with that Mm -hmm. cursor just flickering and it 
and it cuts back to it like three or four times. It's amazing that a movie that's so like jam-packed and actiony and funny and all that has that underlining message of him struggling with whether or not he's going to let go of the guilt and all that he's feeling about Goose dying and not being able to reconcile with Rooster and all of the things that are happening that he's able to have that emotional moment with someone who's been so important to him and helped him so much. And I was thinking about how long they've known each other in real life. Yeah. To be in the first one together and and for it to have had the longevity it's had. To be able to reunite. I mean, we probably don't have like Val's probably not going to be around for much longer. Mm -hmm. And I'm just so, so, so glad they got to do that. And it's so special and so moving that like a character that was so pivotal in his career was able to go out in this blaze of glory where he has this, he's, he's reached such a high level in the military and is so respected and dies in the movie and they have that beautiful funeral for him. It's so special that he was able to pay tribute to a character that that's been a part of his life for so long that's so true this scene where they're like running through the snowy woods oh my god (laughs) (laughs) i give me 10 more movies with them together i thought they were hysterical what i love about that section of the movie is it feels like a bonus yes everything up to that point with the pilots and the actual jets was so exciting and so perfect that When it's done, you're like, oh my God, what a great movie. And then there's like 20 more minutes of them having to get into the the fighter plane. And it's the one that he was in in the first one and all that nostalgia and that he's in the back where his father used to be. All that stuff is like cherry on top of the Sunday because it was already so good up until that point. And then we get this little section of them having like a buddy comedy moment. It's so good. When when he first runs up to him and shoves him to the ground, it is so... What the hell? What are you doing here? What am I doing you here? I took that missile so you could be down here with me. You should be back on the carrier by now. I saved your life. I saved your life. That's the whole point. What the hell were you even thinking? You told me not to think. Also, it's crazy how tall Miles Teller is compared to Tom Cruise. I know Tom Cruise. That's why I texted you and asked how tall he was. Well, it's also because Tom is so short. Yeah, but he was towering. (laughs) I mean, I thought he had to be 6'3". Which is funny because I, for a long time, there was like this rumor... Maybe it wasn't a rumor and he's it's something he's truly gotten over. There was this thing that Tom would never allow scenes where it was super obvious that he was way shorter than his scene partner. Like he didn't want to be known as the one that's shorter. And there's so many two shots of them where Miles is noticeably way taller than Tom. I was surprised to see them actually do it I so had the often. same thought. <laughs> Also, I was thinking about all this talk lately about how movies aren't sexy anymore. Even when there are sex scenes, they're not sexy. They're not erotic. They're not, you know. And I was like, that scene on the beach, I'm telling you, man, normally sweaty shirtless men. I'm just like, okay, it doesn't do anything. I was like... What's going on? Sure, you had seen so much of it, like on TikTok and stuff, when it was popular. Yeah, I'd already seen it probably 10 times. 10 times, but it was... It was like the first... And also that One Republic song could not have been more perfect. I I listened to an interview of Ryan Tedder talking about getting the call to write that song from Tom. And he said that he wrote the song like in 20 minutes. 
and sent it's the crazy. and sent the file to Tom and he was like, did you already have this written? And he's like, no, I watched the scene and I wrote it for the scene. And Tom was blown away at how perfect it was. He too was inspired by the sweaty shirtless Bob. Ryan's like, I know exactly what the song <laughs> needs to sound like. And it was perfect. <laughs> but I am I love the scene with him and Penny uh, after they sleep together and they're talking about the decision that he's struggling with about whether to take Rooster on the mission or not. And one of the lines that always sticks with me is when he's talking about the promise he made to his mom about not letting him like follow in his father's footsteps. And Penny's like, why didn't you tell him? And he said, He will always resent me for what I did. Why should he resent her too? so beautiful yeah i was hoping the whole time for a meg ryan cameo and when he said that i thought maybe it's gonna happen maybe it's gonna happen <laughs> and i was disappointed by that a little yeah i thought i remembered you saying to me you're gonna be surprised by a cameo it was avatar it was avatar which do you want me to tell you or should you or do you do don't tell me Okay. <laughs> it's, I'm building it up too much. It's, it's not like Ryan Gosling and you're going to be so excited because of who it is. It's just someone like I would never have expected to have been in it. To, and so to see them was, I was like, what? It's you? <laughs> when Rooster finally yells at Maverick, though, and says, Why'd you pull my papers at the Academy? Why did you stand in my way? You weren't ready. Ready for what? Huh? Ready to fly like you? No. Ready to forget the book. Trust your instincts. Don't think. Just do. You think up there, you're dead. Believe me. My dad believed in you. I'm not going to make the same mistake. Holy shit, was that scene good. The whole, every scene. <laughs> All of the stuff with them in the air is hysterical, too. Do you know who played Bob? You told, we talked about that. I did not know until you told me when we were talking about Bill Pullman for some other reason the other day. Oh, okay. <laughs> Otherwise, I had no idea. Well, that's all my notes. I don't know if, is there anything else you want to, we'll, we should do an episode on both Top Guns, actually. We really should. Maybe next summer we should do that. Do you think they're going to make a third one? I yes. feel like maybe they will. I Yes, I, I 100% do. Because this one, first of all, this one was way too successful for him to turn his back. And now I think he's reinvigorated by how well it did how proud he was of it before it did super well and then the reception i i guarantee you they'll make another one it just makes me a little nervous because even though he's a very youthful and fit guy he's not young i know and these kinds of things you can't turn it around in 12 months i know have you seen the original yeah Course. I couldn't remember. I would not I, have watched this without, without. I did. The first time I saw it, I, I, the first time I saw it in, in the theater, I had not seen it. But then that like next week I watched the original. I am so excited that we're recording this episode today because as I texted you after or in the middle of watching this, I'm ready to watch 50 Tom Cruise movies <laughs> and you had the same yes. experience. Yeah, I literally had the same exact reaction and watched like 10 of his <laughs> movies. <laughs> and I haven't been able to do that because I've been watching so many <laughs> of these so now that we're done or we're going to be done i can't 
wait, I'm watching <laughs> Cocktail. Oh my God, I haven't watched that one yet. Me neither. <laughs> oh my God, that's so good. Like you said in your text, he's undeniably irresistible or whatever you said. Unfortunately. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's even better. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, do we want to talk about Banshees of Inisherin? Yeah. I was crying nearly through the whole thing. This was like the saddest movie I've ever seen. 15 minutes in, I wrote, if Colin doesn't win Best Actor, I will lose it. He spoke four words, and I was like, if he doesn't win, I am <laughs> yes. never watching the Oscars again. He was someone else. Uh, he was someone uh, uh, I don't know who he was. I don't know where that guy's been. But he, it was instantaneous. Physically looking at him, he looked different. Did I like this film? No. Did I think it was a masterpiece in yes. terms of his performance? Yes. And also the dialogue. While it was probably the saddest movie I've ever seen, that's an exaggeration, but still, it was also so funny. So many lines I was actively laughing aloud at. I can see why you felt that way, and I'm sure a lot of people did. But the dialogue was depended so much on repetition to make uh, it funny that I was like, get me the fuck out of here. Have you gone feckin' mental? Have I gone feckin' mental? No, I haven't gone feckin' mental, actually. Not only have I not gone feckin' mental, but I have ten fingers to prove I've not gone feckin' mental. How many fingers do you have to prove you've not gone feckin' mental? Nine fingers. And nine fingers is the epitome of mental. That's right, the epitome. There'll be none of that. I didn't come here for licks. I came here for the opposite of licks. What's the opposite of licks? Huh? So funny, because I didn't even notice, but the that's not what... Most of what I laughed at was was not repetition. One of the lines I wrote down was so... I watched it back three times. It was so funny. When they're when he's talking to the two guys at the bar about... You know, I mean, that's all they talk about the whole time is about him not being his friend anymore. And they're like... That said... I did think the two ye always made a funny pairing, like. No, we didn't. Yeah, you did. You did. Obviously, you did. Because now he'd rather maim himself than talk to you. <laughs> it was so <laughs> funny. That guy's delivery was hysterical. I don't still understand. I do understand why he maybe had a revelation about his life and his creativity and mm -hmm. why he didn't want to spend so much time basically talking about yeah nothing mm -hmm. but the way he went about it i don't understand i think he's an asshole i i don't think like we're meant to really understand his side and there's little moments that i think tell you that that's the case one in particular when Parik confronts him at the bar and he's like drunk Colm is again explaining like why he doesn't want to be his friend and blah 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 and he talks about mozart I suppose niceness doesn't last then, does it, Parik? Well, I tell you something that does last. What? And don't say something stupid like music. Music lasts. Knew it! And paintings last. And poetry lasts. So does niceness. Do you know who we remember for how nice they was in the 17th century? Who? Absolutely no one. Yet we all remember the music of the time. Everyone to a man knows Mozart's name. Well, I don't, so there goes that theory. 
And then at the end of that scene, when Parik and his sister are leaving and she turns to him and corrects him about the century that Mozart is from. It was the 18th century anyway. Mozart, not the 17th. At least for what I took from that is that he's like a pompous douche who wants to be this great thinker and beautiful composer, but he really isn't. He just thinks of himself that way and and is it's a front that he w- wishes to be that way, but really isn't. And is like trying to change his life to maybe be that way, but he doesn't have the stuff behind him to back it up. That makes a lot of sense. But my remaining question is, if he was that much of an asshole, which I believe he was, mm-hmm. why... Did Parik, like, why was he so shocked and confused by it? It seemed like, from what I gathered at least, that they had been real, genuine friends and that Parik thought he cared about him. Yeah. Maybe, like, is he that dimwitted? Are we supposed to Maybe. think that some of it? Because he does have multiple conversations with his sister and then the um, Dominic, I think. And they're all kind of like, well... I mean, you are kind of dumb. Like, we we like you still. What but does he call you... it? Dull, I think? <laughs> yeah, dull. <laughs> I mean, you are kind of like that. But, you know, as everybody says, you're nice. So they ignore it. <laughs> it's so, oh, my God. It's like the most upsetting movie ever. I can't talk about the donkey. Well, please. I, I honestly I can't do it. I saw, I had to pause it. I really couldn't recover. I was. I, I skipped was, over it. I, I was inconsolable. I was, his sobbing, like, you can't even understand i didn't even let myself go there emotionally i i couldn't i couldn't i was already there from so many scenes (laughs) that i was like on the verge the whole time like anytime i wanted to physically hurt anybody that that was mean to him and everybody was yeah (laughs) i just it was hard when he gets beaten up by the cop and then colin takes him home and he cries i was beside myself and then at the end when he was writing back to his sister and i can't remember what exactly he says but letting the sister think that jenny's alive and well as i told you me life is on in his errand me friends me animals even now as i write little donkey jenny is looking at me saying please don't go barrick we'd miss you and nuzzling me the gilly ghoulie Get off, Jenny. The whole thing was too much. Everyone who mattered to him was taken from him in a matter of a couple weeks. His friend, his other friend, his sister, and his pet. Horrible. That's everyone he had. And the sister and the pet happened in like a 30-minute time frame. He was literally on his way to take the sister to the boat and and came back and his pet was dead. It was so sad. I love when he... (laughs) I love when he's sitting inside by the fire with Penny and the sister comes in and yells at him and he's like, Oh, for God's sake, Parik, how many more times? I am not putting me donkey outside when I'm sad, okay? It was so touching that I couldn't even laugh at what I knew was funny. Yeah. I was too emotionally raw. I totally feel that. Yeah. I, that's why sometimes I was laughing because I was, I felt like I, <laughs> you was, were like, this I was is all crazy. Ner- I was all nerve endings. Couldn't yeah. even, I was, he's so tender. 
that it's almost like I, I want to just put a bubble around him and protect him from all the bad things in the world. Yes. And, and all that came at him was horrible. You just summed <laughs> the whole thing up in one sentence. That's it. He was too tender for that world. Yeah. And it should have been perfect for him. This perfect little island off of the coast of Ireland. Yeah. It should have been the perfect little life for him, but everybody just didn't subscribe to the and same it, thing. it seemed like it was. Yeah. Until, until then. I love that after Penny's gone, he lets all the other animals inside. The horse <laughs> is like in his bedroom. <laughs> on a totally different note. How? I mean, I know this is like putting a hat on a hat. It's so ridiculous already. But why in God's name did Colin cut his pointer finger off first? The pinky is right there, dude. Put Cut the pinky <laughs> first. You're going to cut your pointer finger off first? Also, him walking around with it just raw, exposed oh, to the oh, air. Yeah. Like, it he would have so bled ridic- to death. It was so, it's so ridiculous. But I guess that was, like, on yeah. purpose. Yeah, I mean, that was not meant to be of us. I mean, that's not the actions of a sane person. So, overall, beautiful in some ways, but I hated it. <laughs> yeah, this was what this was in the top half of the ones that I liked. Also, I just smiled at the fact my grandmother would have loved this one. Oh, I know she would have been touched by by Parik. I can just hear her how she would describe the movie of all he wants to do is be his friend and he won't be his friend. And she would have loved this one. This would have been her favorite, I think, actually. Well, she would have loved Top Gun, too. She She's a sucker for, like, a good movie. <laughs> good action movie, too. She loved action movies. Do you want to talk about it a little? I don't ask too often because it feels like maybe you don't like talking about it, but... I do and I don't because it makes me sad, but it makes me happy. It's I know you yeah. know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when I see things that I know she would love, it's hard because I wish there was some way for me to like share it with her. Yeah. Or even to just know that she's with you in a way yeah. too. Yeah. It's funny. It's o- so hard to describe. It's almost like I've heard her talk about it. That's how like <laughs> real it feels. You can just hear what she would say. It feels like almost a memory. That's how visceral it feels. It's so bizarre. It's like I've heard her say it. Maybe you having that feeling is her way yeah. of saying, like, I am experiencing this with <laughs> yeah. you. You know? Yeah. So up next is Everything Everywhere All at Once. I don't know what I was expecting, but nothing could have prepared me. (laughs) I, yeah. I knew it was going to be wild. It was more wild than I really ever thought. It could be. Yeah, it was so wild that I (laughs) barely understood it. I couldn't explain this. Could you explain this movie to anyone? I don't think you're supposed to understand it the way you typically do. I mean, I know it's meant to be chaotic. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of it is meant to be nonsensical. It's an overarching message that maybe you're supposed to get by the end. And of course, there's other meaningful stuff woven into it too. It's not just that, but I don't think you're really scene by scene, moment by moment, supposed to follow and understand everything that's going on. Or at least if you are, it was beyond me. I completely agree. And the way I know that you're probably right is that the ending works either way. I didn't understand 75 to 80% of it leading up to it. And the climactic end scene worked 
completely perfectly. I read an interview with the directors who, I don't know if you know this, they're both named Daniel and they go by Daniels. Yes, I do. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I thought that was so cute. It is really cute. They did say that, I think they started writing in 2016, and a lot of it was inspired by the crazy, crazy algorithms on social media Mm. that will feed you just the most bizarre video after video if you let it. When I read that, I thought, oh, now it actually makes all that stuff make a lot more sense. It does, actually. What I gathered from them is that they didn't start out, I think for the most part, when people are writing a screenplay, they have an ultimate either story or lesson or whatever that they want to communicate. And I think it kind of happened the opposite way for them, that they wrote all the chaotic stuff and then went back and tried to find or create meaning in it. Wow. That seems so much harder to do that way. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. It's definitely not the way I would ever be able to do anything, but (laughs) I felt that was pretty interesting. So what was your ultimate understanding of what the message is? I think that it's a lot of a generational trauma is a huge takeaway. Our relationship to our parents and our parents' parents and our children. Especially for immigrant families. Yeah. Yeah. And that was what hit me the hardest was that at its core and like the way they interact with one another and, and their relationships to each other and for each other. I thought it was really cool at the end when we see Joy's parents kiss. Yeah, because I know I've heard people say before, it seems like it is a lot of immigrant families, like children, you know, first generation Americans saying that they didn't see their parents show physical affection. Mm -hmm. And part of that might be a cultural thing. But I also imagine that part of it is that they're so unbelievably stressed And working so, so hard to create a life in this country where often they have no support or anything, community, that it's almost like they don't, there's like not even the time or the space to Mm. have that. So I just really loved seeing that little Uh moment. I thought that was really special and cool. And I read that Daniel said um, one of them. I'm trying to figure out the way to say this because they're not the Daniels. They're Daniels. <laughs> so I'm trying to figure out like the, the right grammar of how to say it. But one of them said that when they decided to put that in, they knew how special it would be for so many children oh of God. immigrant parents. Isn't that so beautiful? <laughs> it really is. Why am I crying? <laughs> what are we going to do with me? <laughs> Oh, you're so cute. One line I wrote down that was so cheesy, but for some reason worked so well in the scene is when, um, I mean, nobody has really any names, but the guy who was in the, had the raccoon on his head, when he's like, when he's talking about losing the raccoon on his head, and he says, Useless alone. (gasps) We're all useless alone. It's a good thing you're not alone. It's such a cheesy Hallmark 
thing to say, but it completely worked in the scene. Normally, I wouldn't even ask you this because I would assume the answer is yes. But because the whole thing is chaotic, I'm wondering if you realized what that raccoon was a reference to. To Ratatouille? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I think it was so funny that Evelyn is trying to remember the plot of Ratatouille and describes that to Joy and to Waymond. And and then that ends up being a universe. It's almost like because she spoke it is what it made it one of the world. That's so funny. I don't think I even realized that. And then she even argues with Joy. Joy's like, are you talking about Ratatouille? And she's like, no, no. I'm telling you, there's a movie where a raccoon (laughs) is on the sky. <laughs> you are like puppets, you know, puppets. You can do things you normally cannot do. It's like that movie. Um, that movie. Okay, what are you talking about? Rakakuni. What? Uh-huh. Rakakuni. You know, the one with the chef. And he makes bad food. Pui. And then this raccoon sit on his head. Ooh, control him. And then he cooks good food. Do you mean Ratatouille? Ratatouille? I like that movie. No, 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 no. Raccoonie with the raccoon. Everybody stop making up sounds. So there's there's a raccoon joy and there's a raccoonie and they're they're controlling us? I'm going to watch it again. I I think that I'll like it the more times that I see it. Not that I didn't like it, but I feel like it's something that it it lends itself well to rewatches. I think what it left me with was everything is unpredictable and nothing makes sense pretty much ever, but we get to decide what we're going to do with that. So beautiful. Yeah. (laughs) I think the message and everything you need to take away from the movie is in that scene of Evelyn and Joy in the parking lot. And that one a little bit before where her husband says, yeah. What I don't remember which version. Oh, I think it's her regular version of her husband says <laughs> something along the lines of you get to choose like you can choose kindness. That was also when things started changing, that yeah. they weren't going to her as violently, all the security guards or cops <laughs> or whatever they were. Yeah. I love when she's going through all of the universes and fixing all their problems. When she fixes that guy's neck, shows the x-rays and like a doctor describing what he needs and she like adjusts him. And then he says, (laughs) thank you. He makes those two people kiss. It's such a good sequence of her going like person to person, fixing all their like universe issues in that one moment. Yeah. And hearing you say that makes me realize you could probably watch this a hundred times and still get something else from it. Yes. It's so crazy that there you don't even know what to focus on until you've watched it once all the way through the only reason i probably have more of it is because i watched some of it twice another line i wrote down is in the version of them where she's a movie star i love when they're talking in that alleyway and he says in another life i would have really liked just doing laundry and taxes with you that line like in another life it's so loaded in this movie because there's so many lives and you're never really sure anytime waymond and joy are talking you're never super sure if they're aware of what's going every time they say something you're wondering are is this the version of them that knows everything that's going on or are they just acting within this universe so all of their lines are like have double meaning just from them being the one to say it and so him saying that is is he winking to her that he knows (laughs) that in another life they're like that or is it just that universe's 
version of him really truly saying that and it just happens to mean something more to Evelyn. I love that final scene when they're in the office and she just has a content look on her face. Yeah. She's looking at all her family there. Her energy is totally, she's a different person. Yeah. She's the same person. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But she's a different person. (laughs) Yeah. I love at the end when they're getting out of the car to go to the tax office and Evelyn tells Becky that she needs to grow her hair out. It's like slightly offensive, but it's so cute that they both like Becky and Joy take it as this signal that Evelyn's embracing her as her own daughter because it would be something she'd say to Joy. Yeah, it's It's, offensive, but with affection. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) The affection that only comes when you're accepted as part of the family, I think. Exactly. What a great movie. It was really good. Michelle Yeoh is... I read that they used real red carpet footage of her. When she was hey, you, in her movie oh, star you, life, you could totally tell. Like there was st- there was a Crazy Rich Asians poster behind her, and one of the uh, I things. need to go back. Oh, and, I saw and it. And I knew immediately. It also looked like that that camera quality of a red carpet regular movie star thing. Is she it, in the pink dress? I don't remember, but she's at a Crazy Rich Asians promo. Like you, okay. Tell I need real. to go back and see that. <laughs> How could I not have noticed Crazy Rich Asians like in my top ten? How could I not have noticed? <laughs> We were at the final movie, The Fablemans. I had this thought as I was watching it that you actually said before about James Cameron, which is that Steven Spielberg has not updated or changed the way he makes movies. And I'm not necessarily mad at that, but there are times where I think, babe, let's, you know. Don't listen to her, Steve. Never change. (laughs) (laughs) The pacing for the first half was a little arduous what i will say as a disclaimer to everyone listening i know that i like this more than anyone else i am aware that everything that i'm gonna say is at like a 10 and everyone else is at a six it's i get it i know i just can't help it (laughs) share with us why you loved it because i feel like dawson leary i you are you definitely are It's because it feels like one of our greatest treasures letting us into his personal life and why he loves movies and why he is who he is and who made him that way and where he got to and how he got there. And he didn't have to do that. It feels like just an immense privilege to see one of our generation's greatest minds more about the way he thinks and who he is. I was crying like 15 minutes in when his parents take him to the movies for the very first time and his dad is like explaining how pictures work and his mom is like you're gonna love it it's gonna be so good i don't know how it works there's a big machine called a projector inside there's a big bright light and it projects photographs of of clowns and acrobats and elephants uh, projecting means it sends them out happy things like light from a huge flashlight but these photographs move past the light really fast 24 photos in every second now in your brain Each photograph stays for about a 15th of a second. That's called persistence of vision. The photographs move past faster than your brain can let go of them. And that's how the movie projector tricks us into believing that motionless pictures are moving. A motion picture. 
movies are dreams, darling, that you never forget. You just wait and see. When it's over, you're going to have the biggest, sloppiest smile. I mean, I know we're extrapolating how much is... I think it's a pretty good, close retelling to his real life. It doesn't seem like him to exaggerate it or fictionalize it too much. I know he did some parts, I'm sure, but he is a perfect amalgamation of his parents. He got exactly what he needed from his dad and exactly what he needed from his mom. And he gets along with his mom more, and you can tell he's favors her a little like i mean i know he favors her a lot in life what i mean is he's taken after her more so but the parts that he got from his dad were essential to who he is he's practical in a lot of ways he's a big dreamer but he wouldn't have gotten where he was if he didn't have the work ethic in one of the final scenes when he's living in, in the apartment with his dad in la and his dad is talking about how he wants him to finish going to school, but he knows that he's not worried about where he'll end up because whatever he does, he's going to do it 110%. And he got that from his dad. You can see that that's where he got it from. His mom is not like that. She's incredibly flighty and irresponsible in a lot of ways. And she doesn't have the commitment and drive that he needed to be who he is. That's so true. And it makes me wonder, do you think it's that by that point, his father had finally recognized that quality in him? Because for so much time, it seemed like his dad was dismissing his passion just as a hobby. I think what his dad was doing is he's worried. I think he was mm. worried that like he wasn't going to make it, that his dreams were too big and that even though he may have had the talent and maybe he shouldn't make it, he's like such a practical by the book computer guy that he thought, what are the chances that even if my son is talented enough to do it, that he can literally do it. And so I think that that he just was worried that he would let him dream too big for too much of his life, especially since he has a mom who's so like enabling that he feels even more so like he has to be the role of someone who's all right, reel it in, can't just be someone who's making movies and has money coming in from nowhere. So he takes on that disciplinarian role so much because of his wife not being that at yeah. all. Were we supposed to feel as unsettled by Michelle's character as as I did? I don't know if we were supposed to, but I felt that as well. It's like on the verge of unhinged. Scary. Yeah. Teetering a very weird edge. I felt like at any moment it could turn into like a sci-fi thriller. Yeah. I mean, that's how. Totally. <laughs> and I don't know if that's because Michelle herself, I think, is a little bit like that. Yeah. So I don't know if it's the way she played it. Mm. Or if it's because that's who the character was. I mean, I don't know. I guess Steven, is, his vision is so strong and clear that that mm. must have been what he yeah, wanted. Yeah, intentional. Yeah, he wouldn't have, like, allowed her to go crazy with the character. Like, especially since it's his mom. Yeah. It is so incredible that he was able to examine himself so deeply to make this. Because he shares everyone's flaws. Including himself, which really, I mean, you have to know yourself really fucking well to have done what he did for this. Because the scene that maybe that stuck with me the most through the whole thing is when his parents are telling the kids that they're getting divorced and he sees himself filming it in the mirror. It is chilling. Yeah. It's such a acknowledgement of his own flaws and it's exactly what his uncle tells him in that scene i love that judd hirsch got a, a nomination for this role because i think it, it was so it's so deserving because it's so important 
to the whole foundation of not only who Steven is, but what this movie is. He summarizes everything you need to know just from that one scene. If you weren't going to watch the movie, you could watch Judd Hirsch's scene. Him explaining that like art is in our hearts and and that he who it like him and Sammy's mom and Sammy are all of the same kind of person where like art is the driver and and what it'll do to you and your life is what you got what I got art like me like you I think we're junkies and art is our drug family we love but art we're my sugar for art art will give you crowns in heaven and laurels on earth, but it'll tear your heart out and leave you lonely. You'll be a shunder for your loved ones, an exile in the desert, a gypsy. Art is no game. Art is dangerous as a lion's mouth that'll bite your head off. It's such a simple line, but I love when he's he's pacing around the room like so frenetically and he says, Oh, you love those people. Oh, your sisters, your mama, your papa. Except. And then he, he like makes a claw with his hand and he touches his editing machine and he's like, Except this. This I think you love a little more. He calls him out because he needed to hear it because he knew it was true. But he thought that others didn't see it. And he's telling him, we do. We know that's what you're like. And his sister comes to him and tells him a similar thing later when they find out that his their parents are getting divorced. And she comes to him to be consoled. And he really can't get her out of the room fast enough. Like, he wants to get back to editing the movie that he's making and has to show the school tomorrow. I, like, want to respond. But just, <laughs> I'm just, like, <laughs> really in it, what you were just describing. <laughs> You imagine that a person like Steven Spielberg has to have flaw. And for him to just like display it for us is so vulnerable. I can't believe he did it. I also felt a similar way when he finally showed his mom the footage that proved he knew something was going on, which I couldn't believe how long he held on to that. His mom comes out of the closet very, very upset and he's hugging her and saying, I won't tell, I won't tell. (sighs) It was so heartbreaking and also really deeply damaging. And that was another incredibly vulnerable thing to share. Not just the experience of knowing that your mom, and maybe, you know, like she says later on, like maybe they weren't sleeping together, but they were in love. So yes. the, at that point, the physical stuff almost is like, didn't matter. Who it was, cares yeah. at that point? Knowing that his mom fell in love with his dad's best friend, the closest person to their family without being blood related, that alone is incredibly traumatizing. But to also be the only one who knows and is carrying that information for so long, and then to be the one to say that you're going to keep it from your dad and your siblings, <sighs> that is some complex shit right there and for him to share that too is like it also highlights the pretty inappropriate relationship that he has with his mother yeah as her son he's not supposed to be her closest confidant she's an adult woman who is her mother and like the fact that when they're moving and she has her breakdown in the car and he's the one to go out like no no it's it's not it's not appropriate for a teenage boy to be out there consoling his mother because of the emotional or physical affair that she's having. And the way his dad just sat there with a smile plastered on his face was so chilling and upsetting. <laughs> it really and is. And I get it that his dad was probably emotionally unavailable. Like he yeah. couldn't, he 
didn't have the ability to go there. It's also so sick how Sammy was so mad at his mom harboring that resentment for her falling in love with Benny. And then the second he shows it to her and she's so upset, he switches it off. He no longer feels any anger towards her. He's just wants to make sure that they don't break the like delicate ecosystem they have going on in their family. Yeah. And I don't even think it's that he doesn't feel the anger. I think it's yeah. he immediately pushes it way. He shuts down. it down. He had to have known when he was writing this how many people would identify with that. Not necessarily the affair part and like the way that all played out, but the feeling of being that kind of kid who has to push down their own stuff Mm -hmm. to emotionally support one or both of their parents. Like so many people have had a form of that experience. Yeah. It's crazy how much his dad, in many ways, his mom was who was creating that dynamic of him being like the emotional support for her. But her, his dad enables it just as much. Like when he makes him edit the the campfire movie instead of making the war picture that he wants, he's, he's like, listen, I can't deal with this. You need to deal with it. You're going to be the one to make your mother feel better because I frankly can't even be involved at all. Well, and the way that he goes about appeasing her or quote making her better mm-hmm. is incredibly unhealthy too yeah doesn't she say at one point something like she says something about like when she yells at him he'll respond by buying her jewelry or didn't yeah. she say something like that yeah let me tell you this man has been to therapy <laughs> <laughs> to, to even be able to recognize and pull like out that dynamic that his father has such an overly permissive parenting style and how that imbalance unfolded between his parents because that affects the kid too. If the father is unable to emotionally support or care for the kids, to stand up for the kids when it's needed or to shield them from their mother mm-hmm. when it's needed, all those things. That's why he had to, which is fucked up. And also yeah. like... To see the difference between the kids being treated just from him and his sisters. I mean, that's not even a contest. They didn't have any idea what was going on. They didn't even realize that their parents were on the brink of a divorce. And he was, how many years had gone by where he knew what was like harboring between them and could see it. Not only just because of the affair stuff, but like just from everyday stuff, the way they interacted and how dismissive he was of any kind of emotion she was exhibiting and then how unhinged she could be at times where like she genuinely was not a functioning adult. And his father knew that she was in love with Benny. Oh, yeah. When he when they first moved from Jersey to Arizona, he remember at first he wasn't bringing him along. Yeah. And she pitched a fit and was like you need to bring him and he yeah. knew if he didn't know before that he definitely knew that that's why the reason they were getting divorced is because of her not him he she's the one that was finally like i can't live this way anymore he would have lived that way forever yes and i read that his father had died like two weeks before he started making it oh my god he was 102 which is crazy wow makes me happy that hopefully he'll live that long (laughs) (laughs) there was a quote i wrote down that was really moving i thought when he the first time he crashes his new trains his dad takes them away that night he's laying in bed and his dad says you can play with them when you learn to treat them with respect he says i do respect them i love them his dad said i know you do but you can't just love something you also have to take care of it right 
And I just was like, man, that is so true. You see so many relationships on again, off again, relationships where people like one person will take the other one back because they love them. Mm -hmm. Love isn't a feeling. It's that's not what love is. Love is an action. Love is how you care for someone, how you treat them. And hearing his dad say that I thought was so cool. It's too bad he wasn't able to transfer that over to relationships. Like he could understand that love for the trains, for computers. Yeah. For those things. But and it's like he understood his love of making movies couldn't get to that next level of inspiring him to I don't know it's almost like he got it but wouldn't really truly get it yeah I didn't even think about it that way I was thinking about how he treats the other people that his you know his wife and his kids that he's supposed to care for in a certain way but you're right it's almost like he had it all in front of him and he knew what he had to do but he just couldn't do it I was really surprised not to see Paul Dano nominated. It's like I get both sides. I understand why he wasn't because his performance compared to Michelle and even Judd Hirsch is easy to overlook, but it's much more difficult, arguably, to be the the straight man in the... I know it's not a comedy, but he was the quieter, more intellectual person in the movie and it's very difficult to do he's a really phenomenal actor. he really is i like was i knew that but seeing him as this like quiet simple dad made me realize like how talented he really is and maybe actually the casting of both of his parents was pure genius because i'll tell you what Paul also is pretty terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Even playing his father, even playing any of the nice characters that he has. I don't know if it's just because in the back of my mind, I remember all the scary people that yeah. he's played or what. He either plays someone who's absolutely terrifying or who's so like timid and meek and nice yeah. that you're almost as scared. Yeah. Have you ever seen him in an interview before? No. He's very calm and thoughtful. I'm still always like, who's the real you? <laughs> not, that I think, not that I think he's not being genuine, but yeah. I just know what how he's capable of acting that I just am always like, Whoop. And I almost wonder if that was, like you just said, almost thought of when he was cast as his dad. Because both him and Michelle are like that. He's too much of a genius that I can't imagine that he did that unintentionally. When you're casting somebody, regardless of their previous roles, and you're trying to think of them in just this one, but you know that that's not how people think of them. Even if they're not trying to be typecast and they're trying to break the mold or whatever, you take the baggage of whatever else they've done into everything. Thing you see any actor be. Yeah. I think one of the reasons why I didn't like it actually as much as I hoped I would is because there was such an unsettled, almost menacing energy about his parents. Oh. And maybe that had to be that way because he wanted to paint the story that way. Mm -hmm. I wanted a little bit less of that and a little more of the magic of uh, that he, I wanted to see see the magic of movies and filmmaking and Hollywood through his eyes. And we did get a tiny bit of that, but I, I wanted a lot more. Mm. If I want to see that magic through anyone's eyes, it's, it's his. Yeah. So like, where was that? I totally know what you mean. I think he was just not interested in making that kind of, yeah. I think he wanted to show, this is who it really takes to be like what, what I am. <laughs> yeah, like, you're you probably want to be right. 
maybe you don't want to be me because I had a lot of shit going on. (laughs) Yeah. But also to your point, he does give us quite a bit of that, maybe not at the forefront. If he was going to make that kind of movie where he's showing the magic, how could it not come off as like showboaty where because he's making it about himself? Well, it could have been the magic of discovering what uh, movies, not necessarily of making them. Which is why I, because every time we weren't with his parents, we were with him making a movie. And I think every time we saw him make one, we could see the the profound effect that it had on anyone who saw it. When he does take that footage of his mother dancing at the campfire, when he shows that movie, you see how they're all captured by it. Anytime he showed one in class, how like what a response he got even from his classmates. When he makes that war movie and they all cry, I could feel it. It was making who he was. I felt really proud. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And, And also like it's cool to see him make that movie knowing that if that really did happen that that could be the seeds of like Saving Private Ryan. It was like all these big movies that he wanted to make in tiny form. That's cool. When we see him in the very beginning when he's like filming all the little movies with his siblings and he does the one of like the skeleton coming out of the closet and scaring his sister. Some of that is in Poltergeist. Didn't you say there was an E.T. reference? Oh, he's riding bicycles with his friends on the way to the movies. It's like almost an exact shot of the one of the bicycle scenes from E.T. That makes me so emotional. He didn't do as much of that as he definitely could have. He really restrained himself because there wasn't so much visual parallels to his movies. Yeah, I wish he had. It probably goes back to what you said about yeah. the magic thing. Mm-hmm. Like, I probably get why he didn't, but I still wish he would have. Do you have a question about the when his mom was dancing at the campfire? It felt extremely melancholy and upsetting to me. And is that the way it was supposed to feel? Or was it supposed to be her being happy and free? Oh, no, I don't think it was supposed to be happy and free. I think it was supposed okay. to be like, I, I didn't, I don't know if melancholy is like the feeling I had, but it definitely was supposed to be almost like transcendence maybe it was not just a silly dance she was doing it was this moment that they were transcendence is a much better word than happiness yeah it wasn't supposed to be like look at how free and joyous she is no i did not feel that at all it was more like look at how delicate and sad she is Mm. you asked me about the jock flipping out after he shows the movie about ditch day it's one of the things one of the few things i wrote down because i think that's a good moment that he took to say like see see how good i am without being like so pretentious about it because I mentioned that I follow Demi on uh, Letterboxd and one of the things he always puts it in his reviews sometimes that's all his review will be is movies have the power to change the world that's all I took away from that that guy was not expecting to feel that much watching this this silly movie about senior ditch day especially from some kid he bullied for the past four years even he was able to get the emotion of it and that's he was able to he was so powerful that it was unignorable i love when he's leaving like after they have their whole scene about like where he's crying and then the other asshole comes and he beats him up i love when he's leaving the hallway and he turns back and he says life's nothing like the movies fableman 
it's such a Spielberg line because for him it is like he's like it is like the, like I, my life is as close to the movies as it's ever gonna be <laughs> like, and so everything he did in his life he saw as a potential movie I'm having this moment of like understanding or something there's something different about Spielberg compared to every other director and what that thing is has always been intangible to me but seeing this and now talking about it with you and specifically you just saying that about life isn't like the movies it just dawned on me that I don't think there's any other director that lives his life through that lens that life is like the movies and not only lives their life through that lens, but also hands that lens to us to look through for a couple hours. I'm gonna, you're gonna make me cry. Like, it's like for so many directors, this is so silly that I'm crying over this. <laughs> it's like ridiculous. But for so many directors, it's yeah, they're creating art, but it's in a lot of ways perfunctory. It's like what they're doing. This is this is who he is. Yeah. And there are other directors who would say that. And and maybe it's true that like it's not what they do, it's who they are. This is his whole life. He would he would not be who he is if he wasn't doing this. And even if it was stuff nobody saw, like he's doing it because he needs to. It's the way he sees the world and processes everything is by making movies it's an added bonus that he like lets us see them and like (laughs) but like he would be making he'd be like in his closet making them even if nobody saw them but his mother it's amazing he's the he's the greatest filmmaker that there ever has been i do not know what's wrong with me no please this is like it fucking insane <laughs> sitting here crying about steven spielberg <laughs> <laughs> thinking about the memories he must have of this life of creating these things this is so silly and ridiculous but the kind of person that dawson leary was that's no i i i fully feel like it's, it's like ridiculous. so embarrassing it's not it is it's deeply embarrassing because like what <laughs> What I was going to say, this is literally going to be one of the final things that I said about this. When he, at the very end, the final scene is him going to see his hero, John Ford. Dawson's Creek is a stupid show. It really is. But the fact that Kevin Williamson did nail something with Dawson being able to like meet Steven Spielberg at the end of Dawson's Creek, it's like the most ridiculous thing. As I'm saying this, this is fucking ridiculous. But like, <laughs> the fact that it parallels so deeply this ending moment of, of The Fablemans, where he goes to meet his, his directing hero, John Ford, and he gives him advice and then he runs out of his office and that's the end of the movie it's so parallels the end of dawson's creek he's it's the same thing him walking into that office and getting that advice and the the way that he received it Mm -hmm. was dawson it's such a beautiful ending to the movie because he's like on the precipice of this amazing career and life that he's gonna have it was a perfect ending also i cackled i was well first i'm sobbing but then i laughed so hard (laughs) at him moving the camera up so that the horizon line was at the bottom it was so perfect the that could not have been a, a more perfect ending all right if you enjoyed this episode please share it with someone you think might like it too and leave us a five star review on itunes and on spotify till next time bye